Welcome to the Expert Introduction Podcast for the National Academy of Medicine Scholars in Diagnostic Excellence Program. This collaborative program between the NAM and the Council of Medical Specialty Societies is funded by the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation with additional support from the John A. Hartford Foundation. I'm Brandon Mon, and I'll be hosting this episode. I am an Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at Oregon Health and Science University. My research centers on how emergency physicians make time-sensitive decisions under conditions of uncertainty, particularly regarding the diagnosis of pulmonary embolism. My current projects in the Diagnostic Excellence Program focus on identifying gender and racial implicit bias and how physicians test patients for pulmonary embolism. My esteemed guest today is Dr. Katie Milkman. She is the James Deenan Professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, and she holds a secondary appointment at Penn's Perlman School of Medicine. Her research explores ways that insights from economics and psychology can be harnessed to change consequential behaviors for good, such as savings, exercise, student achievement, vaccination, and discrimination. To that end, she co-founded and co-directs the Behavior Change for Good initiative at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Milpin has published dozens of research articles in leading academic journals, and her findings are regularly covered by almost every news media outlet. She has worked with or advised numerous organizations on behavior change, including the White House, Google, Walmart, Humana, the U.S. Department of Defense, 24-Hour Fitness, and the American Red Cross. Katie, it is a real pleasure to have you on the podcast today. I've spent long hours listening to your Choiceology podcast, and I feel just really quite privileged to have you with us today. Oh, thanks for inviting me. I'm really excited to be here and honored to receive the invitation. You know, my hope today is that we can discuss some of the things you've learned as a behavioral economist to help us get a new perspective on some of the decision-making challenges we face in healthcare. As an emergency physician, I'm particularly interested in novel approaches to improve the quality of time-sensitive decisions that we make in settings of uncertainty, where we don't really know what the right course of action is. You know, in broad terms, medicine is comprised of two parts, diagnosis and treatment. And while diagnosis precedes treatment, I think for the purposes of our discussion today, we can work backwards and start by talking about treatment since some of the decision tools in this area are a little bit better defined. Perhaps we'll start with a commonly known intervention, the checklist. In your book, How to Change, you describe several strategies to reduce forgetfulness, especially when facing multiple distractions or other competing demands on our working memory. As you may imagine, the hospital environment, particularly the emergency department, is a complex system with many distractions, which is a pretty good setup for forgetfulness that impacts our work. Checklists have long been used in aviation and other high-risk industries, such as nuclear power, to ensure successful operation of a complex system. Maybe we can start today, Katie, if you could describe to our listeners how checklists are used to address forgetfulness and how they can improve our decisions. Yeah, absolutely. This is one of the simplest and most valuable decision tools out there. And basically, if there are a series of actions you need to remember to perform and it's more than two and the order matters, potentially, there is nothing better than a checklist to make sure that you don't skip over something important and to make sure that you have an outside way of getting through what your memory might struggle with, right? So our brains are not well-designed for storing large amounts of information necessarily in an orderly fashion. They are incredible, right? We have incredible memories and they're associative and all these things, but long series of actions, we might skip over something, especially when we're in habit mode. And so there's wonderful research 
particularly, you know, Atul Gawande in medicine has done some of the best work showing just how much value it adds to step through a checklist when you're doing something important and where a mistake could be costly. And it's not just medicine, though. This is important in everything from teaching to being a successful auto mechanic. On my podcast, we had Caribou Jackson, who's an incredible economist, come and talk about work he'd done actually with auto mechanics, showing that it could improve outcomes and and profitability to have checklists in that context. So they're really widely valuable. And I think sometimes we have egos that make us feel like using a checklist means I don't have my stuff together and I need this outside crutch. And I think we have to do away with that mentality because none of our brains, I mean, in fact, the busier you are, the more you have going on, the more exciting things you're thinking about, the more you need that checklist so you can offload the responsibility for the boring, mundane task of getting everything done in order. So in a way, I wish we could flip the narrative and say, those of us who have you know, big brains and a lot going on, we really need the checklist. The checklist is the most important for, for the most organized and excited people. And so it's, it's an important asset. We should use them whenever we can. They increase safety and improve outcomes. I like your comments about you know, what is the role of ego? Because certainly there are times where you say, gosh, you know, this is pretty simple. I, I, of course, can do these things. But it is, in fact, that level of overconfidence that, of course, I'm not going to forget something that is when forgetfulness happens. Right. And overconfidence is one of the most pernicious biases, one of the most common biases. There's really no one who doesn't exhibit overconfidence as far as we can tell from the research, right? especially in areas where we feel we have expertise. So, we do something called overplacement. We think we're better than the average on average, which is impossible. People can't all be better than average. And that is a big bias we need to counter. And checklists are one way of ratcheting that. And if you're confident, you're sure you'll walk through all the steps that you need to for a, say, successful surgery, that might prevent you from relying on a checklist or outsourcing to others some of the critical steps that ensure safety. And you want to counter that and recognize that actually the best surgeons are the ones who are sticking with checklists and we all need them. One other thing I I was just thinking that I suspect is a pretty important bias in the context of diagnosis that I just want to flag is the bias of escalation of commitment, which is that once we have chosen a path, we are very, very slow to deviate from it. So once you have said, I think this patient is at risk for a heart attack or pulmonary embolism or whatever it is, and you've sort of gone down a path, we tend to feel like backpedaling and say, oh, no, it's it. I actually am realizing that was sort of the wrong path. It must be something else. Or, you know, once you've made an investment in a in a stock or, you know, taking on an entrepreneurial adventure, we are just very averse to backpedaling. It's a feature of human nature. It's a really important bias. One of the things that drives it is something called the sunk cost fallacy, where investments we've made in the past, we treat as though we want to recover them, even though they're gone, we should only be thinking about what's optimal to do in the future. And I think keeping escalation of commitment in mind could be really important. And trying to think about what are ways that I can, one of the best things we can do for escalation of commitment is actually have someone who's outside of our decision making sphere, come in and offer guidance, because they won't have those sunk costs. And there's maybe both a fear of losing what effort we have committed. And you, you talk a lot about in your podcast, for sure, I've talked about loss aversion. Absolutely. And and we're risk seeking in the domain of losses because we hate losing so much. We'll, we'll gamble to try to uh, get out of that 
fear where we feel like I'm going to be down money at the poker table or in life, or I'm going to lose this patient, right? We take risks to avoid the loss. Whereas when we're in the domain of gains and things are going well, we're more risk averse. So there's a lot of things that happen and absolutely escalation of commitment when we're, is partly driven by this fear of a negative outcome and, and not wanting to lock that in. Right. You know, another challenge in treatment is building new habits and improving on old ones. You know, physicians like many professionals spend a lot of time learning how to treat disease, you know, learning what an optimal approach to treatment is. But the treatments I learned about when I was in medical school 15 years ago are not necessarily the treatments we use today. And continuing to learn new skills and new habits is, is a challenge. There's a pretty broad body of literature showing that it takes well over 10 years, typically 17 years is the quoted time for medical innovations to become widely adopted in medicine. And while physicians have to take annual training, it's not necessarily coordinated. So what I'm learning about isn't necessarily what my partner's learning about, so on and so forth. As I read your book, I was struck by your research on fresh starts and the idea of trying to find a, an opportune time to learn new habits and to learn a new way of doing things. Could you describe your research on fresh starts and maybe how, how this approach could be used to adopt uh, new paradigms within a hospital team or a medical practice? Yeah, absolutely. I love talking about this. And I do think it's really relevant to the context you just described. So this work, I think to understand it, it's sort of helpful to understand its origin story. It came about from a visit I made to Google's headquarters out in Mountain View about a little over a decade ago now, where I was presenting research on different ways we could nudge people to make better decisions about their health, wellness, education, and so on. So, you know, HR managers at Google were gathered and we were talking about things like, you know, how do we get more employees to take advantage of continuing education opportunities in the company? I realize that's very different than continuing education for a doctor, but it's the same issue, right? You have programmers who are becoming somewhat obsolete in their knowledge if they don't retool and learn the latest programming languages, learn about the latest AI tools and so on. And not everyone was taking advantage of this free programming optimally. That was one of the things we were talking about. And I got this fantastic question after presenting some research showing various nudges that help people pursue their goals more effectively. And the question was, you know, okay, Katie, we're completely sold on the idea of using behavioral science to encourage adoption of these valuable programs we offer that will help people achieve their goals. But is there some ideal time when we could be encouraging adoption and rolling out opportunities for our employees. And I thought it was such a great question because it seems obvious to me, it's probably obvious to everyone listening, that there are days when you wake up and you have zero interest in trying something new. You're like, nope, I'm barely going to get through the day, barely going to roll through my old routine. And there are days when you wake up and you really feel ready to tackle a new challenge. And the idea that there might be something systematic that separates one type of day from the other that we could capitalize on to make sure we put opportunities in front of people at the right moments was really intriguing. And I knew of no research on this. So I ended up starting a program of research with my then PhD student, Heng Chen Dai, who's now a professor at UCLA, tenured professor at the Anderson School. So proud of her. She's the best. And Jason Reese, who's also a fantastic colleague. And we were exploring this question. And the first thing that came to mind for us, which might also come to mind for you when you think about you know, when is the optimal moment for change, was that New Year's resolutions are incredibly popular, right? 40% of Americans sort of gravitate towards this one time to try to make a positive change in life. And we were wondering what is behind that? And is it possibly indicative of something broader about human nature and when we're willing to make change? 
So we sort of dug into the literature. And one of the things we learned is that the way we think about time is actually not a continuum. We don't think about our life as if it's a linear progression. Instead, what we think about is chapters. Like we are a character in a novel. And, you know, chapter one might be, you know, high school. Chapter two is the college years. Chapter three is, well, for you folks, probably medical school, the residency, maybe your first job, you know, the, the Boston years, the Seattle years, et cetera, you know, pre and post marriage. So we have these chapter breaks. And that's how we think about time, not linearly. And what that means actually is that at those chapter breaks, just like January 1 feels like a prominent chapter break, these chapter breaks give us a sense of a new beginning. So January 1 is the one we all think about. We sort of flip the page on the calendar. It's a new year. We say, oh, you know, last year I meant to do X, Y, and Z. But we can say that was the old me and this is the new me and it's going to be different this time. So those new beginnings give us a sense of disconnect from our past failures that gives us increased optimism about our capacity. And they also seem to create a sense that we should step back and think bigger picture about our lives. This is research we've done is, has shown those two things are going on, but also some past research that we sort of synthesized. And then what we've also done is collected a lot of data and looked at a lot of data to see when are the moments that feel like new beginnings and do they trigger changes in behavior. So we looked at when people search for the term diet on Google, which PS is the most popular New Year's resolution. We looked at when people are most likely to go to the gym. We looked at when people are most likely to set goals on a popular goal setting website about everything from their health and wellness to their finances to their education. And what we found in all three contexts is that you see, of course, the New Year's effect, right? The beginning of a new year is a big one. But also you see every new week, there's a fresh start every Monday. It's it's a new beginning. The start of a new month. Celebration of birthdays seems to be associated with these fresh start feelings and, and changes in behavior. And we also see other starts of new cycles and some of the data sets we can look at start of a new semester for students when it comes to gym attendance or following school holidays. We can look at federal holidays. And when people come back to work right after a federal holiday, we see spikes. Some of it may just be, you know, you eat a lot over the long weekend. And so that's when you search for the term diet, for instance, but that doesn't explain the full complement of data we've collected goals around things like education and finances don't have that feature. So what that led us to realize is, okay, maybe these are moments when people are naturally more motivated, because that's when we're seeing these changes in patterns of behavior. And we ran a series of studies that looked at whether or not encouragement is particularly useful around those moments. And will people be particularly likely to follow through if they're nudged to begin making a change at fresh start moments. And we found some evidence that, yeah, that it does seem to be an ideal time. For instance, in one experiment, we tried to encourage people to start saving in a 401k that was offered by their employer, people who are not yet saving in it. And we invited them to either start right away, that would be ideal. Or if they weren't ready to begin, we offered them a future moment. We said, you know, how about in three months? And we randomly assigned whether we'd just state that future moment as how far off it is. Or if we'd say, do you want to start saving after a specific date that was a fresh start or a non-fresh start date? So we had actually three ways we did this. And what we found is when we pegged the opportunity to begin saving to a fresh start date, like the start of spring or following a birthday, we saw a 20 to 30% increase in savings over the coming eight to nine months. So what this all sort of triangulates to is one, if there are fresh starts in your own life, they may be a good opportunity to motivate yourself to begin something new, but also that you can use these dates to encourage others. And if there's someone on your team or someone in your personal life who you know is eager to make a change and pursue a goal but hasn't been able to pull it off yet, maybe the the ideal time to put resources and opportunities and encouragement behind that change 
is it a fresh start date that resonates for that individual, a new beginning? Our team here at OHSU is the process of building a new emergency department. Even though it wouldn't be a date per se, it would be a very momentous occasion where we'd be literally in a new physical space for the first time. And so we're trying to think of how we can leverage this, this anticipated fresh start to prompt a variety of, of behavior changes. That's great. And I should have said that I think the fresh starts we have focused on studying in our work have been primarily imaginary. There's not anything that actually changes in life on your birthday. It's just an accounting <laughs> in your head. Similarly, you know, Mondays, I mean, there is something different from a Monday and a Sunday, you have to go to work. But but every Monday, it is really just a continuation of life. But actually, the more you make real change, the stronger the fresh start, right? If you have a physical change, there's wonderful research that that's disruptive to habits. If you move to a new space, right? That's literally not only will you have that potential extra sense that this is a moment for change, but say you used to always stop by the vending machine on floor three and now you're in a new building. There is no vending machine on on floor three. That old habit is going to be broken by necessity. And so you have a blank slate to work on. So physical change is fantastic for amplifying fresh starts. Well, let's switch a little bit now to talking about the most of what I do, which is diagnosis. Unlike the process of treatment, where we are trying to apply best practices to a discrete known problem, the process of diagnosis is filled with uncertainty. There's not necessarily a right way to diagnose someone with undifferentiated symptoms. And in many cases, the list of what you could be trying to diagnose is maybe not endless, but it feels endless. If you come into my emergency department with shortness of breath, there's probably four or five things which are responsible for most of the causes, but what are all the potential causes? Hundreds. So when patients present to my place of work, to the emergency department, they don't tend to come in saying I have a specific problem. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they say I, I fell and I broke my ankle. Okay, well, that's that's pretty straightforward. But most people say, I just I don't feel well. I'm I'm tired, my chest hurts, I'm having trouble breathing. It's impossible to test for all the conditions. And so we intuitively, like most humans, rely on pattern matching in our head. We say, well, in someone of this age with these risk factors, what are the most most common things? You know, so we, we call these intuitive pattern heuristics, you know, mental models of disease that we learn throughout our training and ideally revise throughout our clinical practice. This is a huge topic. Katie, I was hoping you could maybe give our listeners a sense of kind of what heuristics are and how they shape our decisions and potentially how they could lead us astray. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I think our original understanding of heuristics dates back to incredible work that was done by Danny Kahneman, Nobel laureate now, uh, and, and Amos Tversky. So in the 1970s, these two brilliant psychologists started thinking about how humans take shortcuts in order to get to decisions. And there was a recognition that even though economists for a very long time had modeled humans as optimal decision-making machines who always reached perfect conclusions, that was simply not an accurate model of human nature, right? If you've ever made a mistake, you recognize you're not optimal. And since we all make several mistakes a day, it's pretty clear that, that that's an inaccurate model. But for a long time, economists said, yeah, yeah, it's inaccurate, but on average, it's correct. And understanding mistakes isn't really that interesting. What Kahneman Tversky came in and said is actually understanding the mistakes can be really systematic and useful. And the general principle of sort of understanding the mistakes is that we use rules of thumb that are 
probably right on average. They may have evolved over time or they may be learned. It's not totally clear where they come from. But most of us use heuristics that are right on average, but can lead us astray in systematic and predictable ways. So to give you an example of a heuristic that would be important, for instance, in diagnosis, one heuristic we have is the more frequently we've heard about something, the more likely we think it is. So what this does is it means things that we talk about more or that make the news more, things that are more vivid, we are more likely to overestimate their occurrence. So let's think about how this heuristic could be good and how it could be bad. If you're trying to estimate how frequently or how likely it is that someone is a bicycler versus a unicyclist, this rule of sort of thinking about, can I recall seeing this happen? How often do I hear it talked about? Will be quite useful, right? You'll, you'll be able to say like, I see a lot of bikes. I don't see a lot of unicycles. Sometimes in the news, I read about something happening in the biking world, like Lance Armstrong or something, but I never really read about unicyclists. Biking must be dramatically more common than unicycling. And you're going to come up with the right estimate. And you're, that's true. Biking is dramatically more common than unicycling. But it's going to lead us astray when there are things that are more vivid. They make the newspaper more than they should seem really scary that people talk about more. So a great example of this is shark attacks, right? There's like Shark Week on Discovery Channel. There's the movie Jaws. Every time somebody is eaten by a shark, it makes the newspaper. And so people think shark attacks are really scary. 10 people die in the world per year from shark attacks. Dogs are dramatically more dangerous, right? Something like 10,000 people die from dogs every year. But dogs are not in the news. There's no dog week. Dogs, we normally see them. We think they're friendly. So we have these bizarre misperceptions of things like danger as a result of this heuristic. And it's going to be super important for diagnosis, I would think, as well to have this heuristic. In fact, one component of it that I just read a really interesting paper about, one component of it is that things that we've experienced recently stick in our minds more because they're, they're more recent, so they come to mind more easily. This is really all about how easily, ease of retrieval, how easily I can think of something because it's vivid, because it's talked about a lot, because it just happened. And there's this really wonderful paper about delivery rooms and doctors making the decision about whether or not to go with a C-section or a vaginal delivery. And this is a paper by Manas Vini Singh that came out in Science a couple of years ago, but I just read about basically after having a bad outcome with one of those methods of delivery, doctors overcorrect and they're dramatically more likely to use the opposite approach. This recent bad experience looms large in their mind and sort of they downweight the value of that approach. And as a result, they're making suboptimal choices about which approach to take to delivery and it's harming patient outcomes. So thinking about these kinds of heuristics and having an understanding of what are the biases to our decision-making, our misunderstanding of statistics, our misestimation of probabilities can be really important and valuable to saving lives. A couple of months ago, we had a discussion with a couple of experts in diagnosis, one of whom, uh, Gurpreet Dhaliwal at University of San Francisco, he had a paper a couple of years ago about how essentially how medical education is doing diagnosticians a disservice by focusing so much on the rare conditions, right? There's this aphorism in medicine. When you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras, because horses are in, for most people in North America, more common than zebras. But yet our education probably spends as much time talking about things like emphysema and heart failure, which are very common, as it does talking about, you know, rare genetic conditions, which are important, but are orders of magnitude less common. And we frequently encounter medical students who are trying to apply the lessons they've learned. And they'll say, well, 
oh, is this, you know, this extremely uncommon autoimmune disease? We say, no, it's, it's just pneumonia. It's, it's not more complicated than that. Yet we talk so much about these rare conditions that we perhaps forget more common things. Yeah, I like that. Although I, I think it goes the other direction a little bit too of like, if there's something common, you could imagine over indexing on it and not thinking enough about the patient situation. I had a, a weird experience, I don't know, a decade ago where I had like a weird skin thing that wasn't going away. And I went to the doctor a couple of times and I went to the doctor in West Philly because that's where I live. And there's a lot of HIV in West Philly, but my background, I'm super, super educated woman in a monogamous married relationship probably doesn't point to that as a major risk factor given my lifestyle. But the skin thing was a little weird. And the doctor was like, I think you might have HIV. And I was like, I don't think that's very likely, really. Like, (laughs) don't, but okay. And, you know, it turned out it was like a dermatological thing. They should have sent me to the dermatologist, but I got an HIV test. And it was one of those situations where I could see the heuristic of like, I see a lot of HIV patients. This could be HIV, but there wasn't enough adjustment for the specific patient and the background and lifestyle that made that very unlikely. So I think it cuts both ways. I think it's a great example. And actually, I can maybe give you another example from my own area of research. So I I studied this thing called pulmonary embolism, blood clots in people's lungs. They generally start in your legs and a piece of clot breaks off and travels up to your lung where it can put strain on your heart. And that's not great. Pulmonary embolism or PE, it's the third leading cardiovascular cause of death in the US. And it's probably the most frequently missed condition in all of medicine, or it's for sure the most frequently missed cardiopulmonary diagnosis in medicine. And it's a challenging diagnosis because its symptoms are very common. People are fatigued, they're short of breath, they've got pain in their chest. But 30 million people in the country every year go to an emergency department with one of those symptoms, and only 1% of them have this disease. And we try to use certain evidence-based tools to help us figure out which of these people might have this disease. And those tools rely on a certain, what we would call a phenotype, a certain version of what this disease looks like. And we can get pretty good at finding the people who have this classical presentation. So if you have a big swollen leg that hurts, you say, it's weird, my leg's been hurting for a week or two. And we say, well, do we know what that's coming from? And if we don't, oh, well, maybe you have a blood clot in your leg. And that helps us paint the picture. But a lot of people, 80% of people with blood clots in the lung don't have leg symptoms. And we can frequently miss that. To your point, you know, there's this balance of what is the common version of this and what's the uncommon version of this. And in your example, is it worth testing someone for HIV even if they have no risk factors? Well, maybe, but is it necessary? Probably not. Although I suppose the spin would be if we took 100 versions of you and one of them had HIV, did we want to catch it? Maybe. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> it's a, it's a hard to figure out. Maybe we can talk a little bit about, you know, in, in your book, you talk about this balance, about how repetition is really important for building habits. In medicine, we talk about you know, the art uh, the art of medicine, the art of diagnosis, and it's generally regarded as a skill that comes from prolonged practice and skill refinement. It doesn't come to you on day one, but there is a risk of getting so comfortable with a certain approach, a certain set of diagnostic strategies, you know, to be frank, no one watches my work, right? I actually don't know if the other staff physicians, the other attending physicians in my group do the same thing I do. We don't really, it's hard to compare notes on an infinite set of diagnostic practices. So I want to talk a little bit about repetition and then how that comes into building good habits. 
at the same time, you talk about rigidity thinking as the enemy of a good habit. And I just, I love the contrast of those two because they're, it's so widely applicable. And in my line of work, it's, it's really applicable. So maybe for a couple of minutes, we could talk about these two themes of repetition and flexibility or rigidity, however you want to think about it. There's a lot to unpack here. First, one thing to know is that habits are essentially a substitute for having to exert mental energy, self-control, or deep thought in order to get to a result. Once you have put something on autopilot, once it's become habitual, you're not really making a choice anymore. You're, you're just going through the motions. So that's very efficient. You can sort of go back to like, why would people have heuristics and biases? Why would they have habits? You can sort of see how this would be an evolutionarily adaptive tool. If I'm going to do a thing over and over again, let me put it on autopilot and be able to use my big brain to focus on other stuff. Repetition and frequent repetition are how, that's how we put things on autopilot. And we actually wrote a paper earlier this year. This was led by Colin Kammerer at Caltech and Anastasia Bouliovsk at HEC Paris. And I got to be a, a part of it where we looked at two data sets. One was looking at people who were gym members and how long it took them to form a habit around gym attendance. And the other was actually looking at caregivers in hospitals, sanitizing their hands as they entered and exited patient rooms and looking at how quickly they formed a habit. And we used machine learning to basically say, like, how does this process unfold? How quickly does it happen? And the simple answer is, first of all, there's huge variation across people and how it unfolds. The majority do eventually sort of get to a habitual state if they're repeating a behavior like either of these often enough, but the average time it takes while there's really wide variance in, in that average is much longer for a complex behavior like gym attendance. It's sort of order of magnitude months, whereas a, a simpler, more straightforward mechanical behavior like hand sanitizing that you're also repeating multiple times a day, ideally, right? Like many times a day, as opposed to if we're if you're really good about going to the gym, maybe three or four times a week, it goes much faster. So order of magnitude, a couple weeks. So we know from a lot of past research that that repetition and ideally, if there's some sort of reward, some benefit to to the repetition, then it takes faster. And then you get into this autopilot state. Now, you talked about rigidity as the enemy of habit. And that comes from some of my work where we were looking specifically at habit formation. So it's a little different than once you're in the habit, because at that point, you are we do tend to be more fixed. But when you're trying to build the habit, we actually found that even though most psychologists thought the best system would be to try to get people to be really consistent in the where and when of performing a behavior that they're trying to turn into a habit, that was actually harmful. So we did this experiment. Actually, I mentioned Google earlier in this interview. This was an outgrowth of my visit to Google in 2012 to talk about fresh starts and, and other things or to, to generate the idea of fresh starts. I ended up partnering with them on an experiment to try to help Googlers form habits around gym attendance at their on-campus gyms. And we did this work where we randomly assigned people to either have incentives to exercise the same time every day within sort of the same two hour interval or with some more variability. We ended up with two groups that exercised at the same frequency for a month, roughly, but one group was 7am all the time, if that was their ideal time. And the other group was more variable. Sometimes it's 7am, sometimes it's 5pm. About half their visits were at the same time in the variable group, whereas 85% of their visits were in the same two hour window in the in the high stability group, I'll call it the rigid group. And then we looked at what happened after the program ended, and we sort of take away incentives, just let people loose, see if they formed stable habits. And we actually found that the people who had been more variable in their gym visits, because we'd induced them to be so, the people who'd been randomly assigned to the more variable routines, ended up forming more consistent gym habits. And what was happening was that when we dug into the data, 
the people who we'd rewarded for utter consistency, they did build some habit around their regular time. So everybody got to choose what their sort of ideal time was. And then we rewarded them for being consistent around that ideal time. So if you had picked 7am, we would see at the end of the program, you are coming to the gym at 7am at a higher rate. That is sticky. But if you miss 7am, you don't come at all. Whereas the folks who'd been rewarded for more flexible routines, they come at 7am ever so slightly less, even if that was their sweet spot time. But they make up for it by coming at other times. If they miss 7am, they still show up. So I think it's really important when we think about building habits. It is really amazing to be able to put behaviors on autopilot. We do want to try to do that. But if we are too rigid in our approach, we're not going to have the backup plan. We're going to sort of give up on ourselves too quickly when we aren't able to hit our sweet spot for achieving a goal. And most goals are kind of hard to achieve. They require a bit of flexibility. They require being able to have a fallback plan. If you, if you can't hit the gym at 7am or if you can't meditate at noon today or you know whatever it is that you're trying to do, you can't practice Spanish on Duolingo at 6pm because you have a work dinner. You don't want that to be the end. You don't want to say like, oh, I give up. You actually want the backup plan. So Habits are great, but they do actually, they can be rigid if we aren't deliberate about practicing ways to say, my habit is broader than it's 7am or bust. It's a habit of getting it done no matter what. And maybe you have a first best time, but you also are flexible enough that you have a fallback plan for when that first best doesn't work out. I love thinking of it in terms of having a fallback plan. I always love having a fallback plan at work. We always need fallback plans. And yet I would agree that Many of the practices that I think we even teach our trainees focuses on, you know, this is the right way to do things, acknowledging that we have no way to know when in the future you're going to need to use this habit and maybe trying to acknowledge that there's not just one way to do things would be important. We're getting close to the end of our time. So I, I wanted to switch to our last topic. I want to talk about two distinctly economic concepts, uh, scarcity and opportunity cost in the context of diagnostic testing. Again, I'm very myopically focused on emergency care since that's where I spend much of my time. Emergency departments have in many ways become the diagnostic center of US healthcare. Patients are routinely referred for evaluations because their primary care doc may not have availability. And even more so patients are referred for imaging such as CAT scans or MRIs that are not quickly available in the outpatient setting. According to Stat News, U.S. emergency department visits have risen faster than population growth for over a decade, while at the same time, hospital inpatient capacity has declined by more than 25%. This scarcity of beds, especially since the COVID pandemic, has resulted in patients often being evaluated in the hallways. And despite these extraordinary measures to keep up with the influx of patients, patients may still wait many hours to be seen. From the perspective of an emergency physician, each patient's diagnostic testing is a balance. We want to do more testing on a patient, but each unit of time we spend on that is time that another patient isn't being seen and that those patients in the waiting room may get worse or may even die while waiting to be seen. This perception of scarcity, knowing that I might not see this patient for a couple hours, paradoxically may actually result in even more testing. I may say, well, what's the replacement of me? I can't replicate me, but what could I do instead? Well, I could just start ordering their testing, even if I haven't seen them. We may actually end up ordering more tests rather than fewer if we actually had time to evaluate each and every patient within a reasonable amount of time. 
I think implicitly we think about scarcity that way, but I'm not an economist and my colleagues aren't for the most part economists. And so I was hoping you could help us understand perhaps how scarcity influences people's choices and how behaviors around scarcity and, and habits we can build there, how we could help learn how that might be influencing our work without us even knowing it. And what can we learn from behavioral economics to help us continue delivering high quality care despite facing an ever rising flood of people who need our help? Yeah, it's a really great question. And the first thing I should say is actually I highly recommend a book called Scarcity by Eldar Shafir and Sendhil Malanathan. It, it is fantastic in reviewing a large body of research on just how harmful conditions of scarcity can be. And, and I'm not talking about necessarily one type of scarcity. Time scarcity can be just as detrimental to someone who has all the resources, other resources in the world, all the financial resources in the world, but time scarcity can reduce the quality of decisions. And another person, it's financial scarcity, but maybe they have lots of time and, and that can be really detrimental. So scarcity is not great, as you point out, though it does have some interesting implications. So one thing that happens under scarcity is, is it focuses our attention on the scarce resource. And actually, for instance, if you face financial scarcity, people often make more optimal financial decisions than someone who doesn't because you're laser focused on the resource that's scarce. And so you might be less biased actually in choices you make because you've figured out how to prioritize making exactly the right call regarding use of your resources, your limited resource. But it narrows your focus so that you can't think about other things going on and outside pressures and, and challenges. Instead, you're sort of really myopically focused on, on the challenge ahead of you. And things like scarcity can literally reduce our cognitive function. So it is really important to be aware that when you are facing time scarcity or financial scarcity or any other kind of scarcity, it has these two implications, both focusing and narrowing the ability to think more globally and even think optimally about choices, you know, what do we do about it is, a, is that's the, you know, trillion dollar question, because if I could wave a magic wand and ensure that all of us had all the time we need and all the financial resources we need, goodness knows I would have waved it already, right? All of us would have. We are simply going to face these conditions of scarcity. And I think what it points to is a recognition that we need even more of the tools to keep us on track and to help us make optimal choices than we might under other conditions, right? We talked at the very beginning of this interview about checklists, for example. They're an amazing tool to outsource what in an ideal world your brain would do perfectly, which is remember all the things, all the things you have to do in, in exactly what order. But if you can outsource that to a checklist, well, now there's less room for you to make a mistake if, say, you're pressed for time. So the more we can think about, you know, reminders or other decision tools or, you know, relying on algorithms that that can help you choose between multiple options because they've crunched the numbers and now your brain doesn't have to crunch the numbers. So when we can outsource to a reliable decision aid in conditions of scarcity, I think it becomes even more critical to do that, to put structures in place that limit the burden on our brains and outsource as much of our decision making and improve our decision making. Uh, as a result, right? You might normally say, oh, no, like I am the be I'm better than the algorithm at flagging who's at risk of sepsis or whatever it might be. But you're going to really need those tools and outside guardrails in a situation where, yeah, okay, maybe if you had infinite time, you're better, but you don't. So let's build out that buffer and, and improve our choices with all of the guardrails we can. That's wonderful. I think I will take that lesson as we enter the winter months of craziness in the hospital and see if we can add in some of those buffers to help us manage the scarcity we do have. So, 
Well, Katie, I am immensely thankful that you took the time to speak with us today. Covered a pretty vast amount of territory. And I think you gave you gave me for sure, and hopefully our listeners, some critical insights of how we can take some lessons from behavioral economics to improve diagnosis in healthcare. On behalf of Scholars in Diagnostic Excellence Program, I'd like to thank the National Academy of Medicine and the Council of Medical Specialty Societies, as well as the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and the John A. Hartford Foundation. I'm extremely thankful to Dr. Katie Milton for joining us and sharing her wisdom on how to make better decisions. Thanks for having me. This was a really fun conversation. Take care.